Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is managing editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Well, uh, not really much is happening in the world today, so it's going to be a short pot. No. Um, if you're listening to this, you may have heard about the coronavirus, unless you're Jared Leto, who was just in the desert <laughs> being like, I bet everything's fine back home. I'm going to go meditate. <laughs> um, no, there, so obviously there, there is coronavirus, uh, and we hope that you are safe and healthy right now, you and your loved ones. That obviously is the highest priority. Um, and you know, we can only recommend what all the experts have recommend, which is, you know, social distancing, washing your hands, avoid touching your face. Um, you know, the, the, the standard steps to, to keep you healthy in this, um, pandemic. Um, what we can cover is sort of our silly little niche, which is the movie industry. And so on today's episode, uh, we're going to first talk about how the show is pivoting, uh, in the wake of coronavirus, because as you've probably noticed by now, a lot of movies are getting delayed. Like our original plan for this week was to talk about A Quiet Place Part 2, and that film has been delayed indefinitely because of coronavirus. And then they're like, oh, okay, well then next week, you know, we'll talk about this, and then we'll talk about, oh, we got Black Widow coming up, and then we got, you know, we've got all these films to talk about. Oh, we're going to talk about Mulan the following week, and now Mulan's been delayed indefinitely. And so the way this podcast is going to pivot is we're going to talk about older films. We're going to talk about films that are currently available on streaming or available to rent. Uh, they're easily accessible. Um, and then you, you know, hopefully, and we'll announce what the upcoming film is at the end of the episode. And so you can be like, Oh, okay, I'll watch this film and then I'll be ready to, to sort of join in the discussion and, and hear what, you know, these two goobers have to say on next week's episode. This will be a fully interactive podcast from now for the foreseeable future. Uh, We are not asking you to go out and spend money to see a movie to hear us talk about it. You can just fire up Netflix Netflix and watch uh, the movie. And we'll always tell you the week before so you have a week heads up to uh, check out what we're going to talk about. This week, though, is the exception because we're talking about Contagion, which is not available on any streaming services. You can rent it um, off most rental services. Um, and if you have Cinemax, it's on Cinemax on demand. Yes. Um, so yeah, you can watch the contagion. Obviously we, we want to talk about for obvious reason. It is a film that a lot of people are watching right now for obvious reasons. So we kind of wanted to revisit Steven Soderbergh's 2011 film, uh, in the wake of our own pandemic and sort of compare and contrast, uh, and talk about how that film functions, uh, because a lot of people have watched it recently. Uh, and then at the end of this episode, we'll tell you what next week's episode will be. So uh, to start things off, though, coronavirus, as you've probably heard by now, movie theaters are shutting down. Uh, Regal is shut down. AMC is shut down. Uh, Cinemark has not shut down yet, um, but I expect that <laughs> that to come in the, in the following yeah. days. Um, so these major chains have shut down. Meanwhile, movie studios are delaying their uh, releases or in the case of uh, universal, they are uh, just releasing them to VOD as a premium rental. So films like uh, the invisible man, which came out less than a month ago, that's how fast things are moving. The invisible man came out on February 28th. (laughs) If case you were like, what? That was like three years ago, Matt. I know. Right. Feels like, feels like a while. Uh, So (laughs) uh, the invisible man, Emma, uh, and the hunt will all be available as a twenty dollar rental for forty eight hours, and that may seem high, but really, if you are at home and you have you know you and your spouse or you you know your significant other, 
you can, that's like $10 a person. And that's basically the cost of a regular movie ticket. And you're just watching it at home or, uh, the upcoming trolls world tour will also be a premium VOD. But for like, if you think of a family of four, now that's only $5 a ticket. So that's actually <laughs> that's kind of, steal. that's a steal, especially when you have kids at home and you're desperate for a way to entertain them. Um, yeah. So though that's what they're doing. Uh, Warner Brothers has announced, or Fandango basically found out that Warner Brothers is planning to uh, release Birds of Prey quickly. Uh, STX, the studio behind The Gentleman, is planning to release that on VOD pretty quickly. Uh, those will both be, I think, available on VOD uh, not this Friday, but next Tuesday. Uh, yeah. yeah, like March 26th. March 24th, I think. March 24th, sure. Yeah. So, like, things are, are happening very quickly. And, and the reason, obviously, is because no one can go out to do the theater right now. And uh, this could signal, and I think it does. There's an article right now on Collider that I wrote, that this is, this is sort of the beginning of a paradigm shift for theatrical distribution. This is what... This is what studios have wanted for a while now. Uh, you may recall that back in 2011, Universal flirted with the idea of releasing the Brett Ratner movie Tower Heist uh, three weeks after it was released on VOD, and theaters really pushed back. The idea for was $50. For $50, <laughs> you too can watch the most mediocre Ben Stiller, <laughs> Eddie Murphy comedy at Ed. home. Um, so they've wanted this for a while and coronavirus, this shutdown kind of gives them the opening because now theaters can't say anything. They can't be like, well, no, you have to show it in our theaters or we won't show it all. Well, they're not showing movies at all anyway. So a studio and the studio still has these films that they want to release. So that's what they're going to do. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting times. Cause I remember covering the whole tower heist ordeal and like everyone revolted. Like it was like, fuck you. This is never happening. The theater owners, um, you know, pushed back and, you know, Universal was like, okay, never mind. We're not doing that. Um, we live in a very different world now. People um, regularly, you know, um, it used to be a deal where like a TV show would premiere and it'd be like, oh, I'll wait until that show's on Netflix and I'll binge it all at once. Now it feels like we're in a moment where it's like a movie comes out and it's like, oh, I'll wait for that to be on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu and watch it then. Um People are, are just so more used to this kind of on-demand era, um, especially with the rise of streaming giving way to the rise of uh, a bunch of streaming shows. I still don't think the streaming movies have been up to par, um, save for you know some of the prestige releases from Netflix. Um, feature film-wise, the originals coming out on those streaming services are not uh, necessarily of the same caliber as what you would see. No, not at all. Like a comedy like Game Over, man, does not compare with like a comedy like Blockers. No, no. Um, and so, you know, there, there was still a little push and pull there. But, you know, it, I think this is a watershed moment. This is a moment that, I mean, we've discussed on this podcast before, a moment that we felt had been coming. And especially as Netflix started making movies with Martin Scorsese and Noah Baumbach, um, it became a, a thing of, you know, um, that release window. So the, the thing to know and the thing to remember is that for ever, for as long as I can remember, um, the theater owners have said that your movie must play exclusively in theaters for three months before it can go on any kind of online service. The reason being that the argument being that if a movie is simultaneously available VOD while it's still in theaters, 
means that fewer people are showing up to the theater, but that theater is still paying to put that movie on one of its screens when it could put a different movie that's not available on VOD on that same screen and make more money. Um, so that three-month window, they've been holding steadfast to it. Uh, and you know, we saw it kind of break a little bit for Roma, but not in any major theaters. And I can't remember with the Irishman and Marriage Story. Was it they, Irishman? They, what they had that fight again, and and the major theater chains once again said no way. Like basically, I think the Netflix was like, we will give you an exclusive window for three weeks on Irishman. I thought it was like six weeks. May have been six weeks, but even then, studios were like, no, we're not doing it. And so the Irishman would play in like a, a smaller chain, like Landmark, but not in the major chains. Yeah. Um, and so there was this, you know, this idea that, you know, that, that three-month window was starting to bend, but was not yet broken. It's now officially being broken with The Invisible Man, The Hunt, and Emma, uh, and then later Trolls World Tour. I think Trolls World, Troll, Trolls World Tour um, is really the headline here, because that is a day and date. Uh, I mean, or at least was until all the movie theaters closed. They were still going to release that in theaters, but we're going to also put that available VOD at the same time Mm -hmm. for $20, um, which would be the first time that had ever happened before in in my estimate. I mean, sure, like smaller, like really tiny movies that were being four-walled or whatever had done it, but no major studio release, let alone like a blockbuster sequel, essentially. Um, And Trolls is an important franchise for Universal. Uh, They make a lot of money in merchandising through that that series. Um, So this is a very huge deal. Yeah, no, I mean, this, this is kind of changing. And I don't, you know, I think some people are sort of saying, like, well, this is this kind of opens the floodgate. So obvious, like, why would... Um, you know, for instance, today we learned that Disney was pushing back Black Widow and it's like, well, why don't you just release, you know, Black Widow on Disney plus or, or release it on VOD. And, and the reason being is there are a lot of ancillary revenue streams that you have to consider. And you also have to consider where the film can spread to. So for instance, uh, you'll also notice that universal for all the films that they are releasing on VOD chose to push back F9, the new Fast and Furious movie, back to uh, April 2021. They said, no, that one is not going to. <laughs> yeah. That is not, no, because, and that's because it's an international title and they need it to perform internationally. And that's the case with pretty much all blockbusters is they have to perform around the world because they, not only do they cost so much to make, but they are also the way you sell, you know, toys and, you know, bed sheets and, you know, the experiences and like, you know, Universal has theme parks and Disney has theme parks and like these titles are like what spur people to go to the theme park. Like there, it's not when you, when you're playing at this stage and dumping this much money into a title it's not just the movie anymore it's all the things the movie connects to and so for instance a title like uh mulan or a title like black widow those get pushed back because disney is not just selling a movie and even if you put it on disney plus disney plus isn't is not in enough territories right now like yeah we have it in the u.s and it's in a, it's in a handful of countries but certainly nowhere near as many countries that have movie theaters <laughs> you know there are more places that have movie theaters than that have disney plus then then if you so if you put it on disney plus you also run the risk of piracy it doesn't take much for someone to just tape it off their tv and then just put it online constantly and there and now no one and now you've really taken a chunk out of 
you know, where this film could perform. And you can afford to do that with something like a smaller film, like, hey, we made a live action Lady and the Tramp. Like, yeah, well, all right. <laughs> that's uh, that's what it is. You know, that, yeah. that's enough to sort of entice people to Disney Plus, but it's not like your tentpole. That would never be a tentpole film. And in fact, they knew it wouldn't be a tentpole film because they didn't release it in theaters. They knew that that film would not be big enough to to merit a theatrical release, but Black Widow is. And so a film like Black Widow, Disney looks at it and they're like, we can't have it released. Like the, nothing is going to be up and running the way it needs to be on May 1st. We know that right now on March 17th. So we are, we are delaying it um, until we know, until we know that this film will, will perform like we need it to. Yeah. Yeah. That's why, you know, people saying like, Oh, um, why can't F9 go on VOD and why doesn't Disney just put Black Widow on Disney Plus? And like, yeah, that would rack up a lot of subscribers. But when you think about the amount of money they stand to make by putting those movies in theaters, there's just no way. So I think a lot of these delays are going to remain delays. Um, I mean, God willing, the world will go back to some sense of normalcy at some point later this year. Um, the, The time frame, I think, is very much up in the air. We don't. We don't know. I mean, Matt and I, neither Matt nor are scientists. Uh, you know, uh, this is a pandemic the likes of which we haven't seen in uh, you know a very long time, and you know, especially affecting the modern world. We're seeing kind of in real time how this is playing out, um, and with you know every. It's not just movie theaters that are that are closed. It's restaurants, it's bars, it's nightclubs. Um, you know, grocery stores are remaining open for the time being. But it really is very much a lockdown to and and to kind of see what we can do to um, flatten that curve. But then, yeah, I, I don't think it, we're going to be in an instance where you know within you know a month or so everyone's got the all clear and and let's just go back to normal. Um, if that were the case. Disney wouldn't have pulled Black Widow from its May release date. Um, and Universal wouldn't have pushed um, F9 to next April. Um, you know, I think those those dates, and it also must be, it can't be overstated how carefully these dates are chosen by these studios. That's why Universal, I think, pushed F9 to next April, because that April date has proven so profitable for them for Fate of the Furious and for Furious 7, um, which I believe both released in April. Um so like, you know, just just delaying Black Widow until like August or whatever, like just, you know, put it out as quickly as possible. I don't think I think that's also something that's not going to happen. I think studios are going to carefully look and see like, all right, where's the best place to put these? Um, once there is kind of an all clear, there will definitely be a rush to theaters. But I think studios were, are going to be cognizant of like, well, we don't want to clog up theaters with all of this. We don't want to kind of blow our wads all at once. Um, and the other factor to consider is Hollywood is shut down right now. Nothing is being produced. Filming has been halted. There may come a point in time in 2021 uh, where we have a gap. There's just a lag of new material coming out because production has been shut down. And so I think some of these films will be held um, until that time probably. Yeah, basically what you're saying is a lot of 2020 movies might become 2021 movies. And then the 2021 movies become 2022 movies. Um, that's just the way the pipeline has sort of shifted. Um, another thing to keep in mind is that again, there's just no switch that you can flip and be like one day, like, it's not like some, someone's going to come along one day and say like every, you have the all clear because the pandemic is sort of receding and 
you know, at different places at different times, depending on their response, depending on how they handle it. But even then consumers will be cautious. Like people who have been stuck at home for the last, you know, however long are not going to be like, well, now it's time to go to the movie theater. Like it's going to be cautious. <laughs> like the, it, the, the, the concept of people being like, yes, I will now crowd a movie theater is not necessarily enticing right now. And I think even when there's the all clear, people will still be a little hesitant. And then on top of that, you have to keep in mind the way that studios market these movies is planned years is planned. Like basically once the film goes into production. So it's not just a matter of like one day someone says there's the all clear for the pandemic. And then the next day Disney says this Friday, go see black widow. No, what happens is, is they basically have to restart their marketing campaign and be like, okay, we've got to generate interest again. We've got to let people know about the release date. We've got to like, you know, we've got to make sure that people know it's on their calendar. And we've got to sort of re, got to get everyone sort of interested to spend money on our movie. And so all of these, this whole machine that runs in a particular way has been knocked off the track. And you can't just sort of say, oh, well, we'll just put it back on the track and everything will be fine. It actually takes a while for things to get restarted. And so during this time, you're just, you know, I think the two avenues we're going to see are basically what's, what's happening now, which is either smaller titles or titles that can afford it are going to move to VOD. So for instance, like a film like the John Stewart comedy Irresistible would not be surprised if that lands on VOD. Like, I think that seems like, I mean, it's a, it's kind of a mid range comedy. It's got Steve Carell, very likable. Um, seems like a kind of a perfect title really to, to, to do a VOD launch, but, uh, a bigger film, like I, I would say a film like, let's say minions rise of Gru on the one hand that may seem like trolls, but minions is way bigger than trolls gigantic like every minions movie makes like a billion dollars and universal does not want to leave a billion dollars on the table to be like well we showed it on vod like trolls does not get you a billion dollars um so that kind of film may get pushed back to 2021 so you're gonna kind of see and i don't think this is all also i don't think this is going to happen all at once i think basically every few days some studio is going to be like hey this major title we had coming uh, about six weeks from now, we're going to push it back. So for instance, in about two weeks time, maybe three weeks, I, I think we'll hear about wonder woman, 1984 being pushed back indefinitely. Um, I just think that's how it's going to go. Yeah. I will be very curious. I mean, uh, the, so the white house's guidelines of no gatherings of more than 10 people is in effect for the next 15 days. Um, I guess 14 days now, uh, that, that proclamation was made on Monday. We're recording this podcast on Tuesday, which by the time you listen to this podcast, we, everything we're saying may be entirely outdated. Um, Black Widow but, in theaters now. <laughs> yeah, everything is fine. <laughs> um, but um, but the White House did say that like those after those 15 days are up, that doesn't mean that like everything's fine. It means they will be reassessing at that point. So we think a lot of decisions regarding those summer movies will be made once those guidelines are, are up. Right now, uh, rightly so, I think America is just going into uh, kind of a complete and total lockdown. Um, you know, even here in, in Tulsa, they're closing all the bars and restaurants and, and shops and, and everything like that, uh, hoping to flatten that curve. Where will I get my bloom and onion now, ask Tulsans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can still do drive through and take out. Um, 
but uh, I mean, that's another whole thing is all these businesses are, are being severely impacted and the economy is being impacted. So we're not saying all of this to say like, oh, no, what will I do about movies? Because there are far yeah, greater I, concerns. Yeah, that's the reason. I, by the way, just as, as you know, we're about <laughs> 20 minutes into this podcast. I would like to remind people that I started this off being saying our silly little corner of this. <laughs> I, we do not think this is of monumental importance. Like your health is more important. Your family health is more important. Everyone's health is more important than when will I see Black Widow? Like that doesn't matter, but this is what the show is about. And yeah, so, at the, at the end of the day, these movies will come out. Like they they will happen. Um, they, uh, you know, uh, you're going to see Black Widow, whether it's this year or next year, who knows? Um, but you're going to see it. So, um, I, 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 but I will be curious to see what kind of what what is the next step? Like after we've taken these drastic measures, uh, what happens next? And so I think that'll all kind of impact what's happening this summer. Um, namely like, will there be a summer movie season is the question. And, and my answer, and you'll read about it tomorrow on the site, uh, maybe as early as today, who knows? Uh, no, there won't be, (laughs) there won't be a summer movie season. I'm saying it right now. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remain somewhat hopeful, but you know, we'll see what happens again. I mean, for me, that's not a hope. It's not a hopeful, not hopeful thing. Like I could, I could give a shit (laughs) like, cause there's, it's like, the thing is, is like, there's never a shortage of movies to see. Like there are so many movies I haven't seen that are older. Like I can, I will not be hard up for entertainment. Um, this is not like, to me, what hopeful is, is like, I hope people I know and care about don't get this terror, you know, get a, get sick. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's what I'm hoping for. The fact that I might have to wait a little while to see Free Guy is not really at the top of my list of concerns. The cruel irony is, you know, everyone for the past, you know, five years in in hashtag PTB has been just like, I need everything to stop for like a whole year for me to catch up on everything. And like, well, you're going to get it. Well, someone, (laughs) someone found a monkey's paw. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to happen. So... Yeah, now which is why we're kind of pivoting to talking about older movies because there's not uh, like there's no lack of interesting things to discuss with those older films and you know sometimes we're talking about newer movies that we don't really have strong feelings about so I think it'd be far more interesting to talk about uh you know um an early Christopher Nolan movie or an early like a 90s Steven Spielberg movie than to kind of sit here and be like yeah well you know this movie was fine yeah, exactly. Like it's be- it's better for us. I think better for you as a listener to <clears throat> excuse me to to be invested in the subject of the show. And you know, we're always kind of torn between like you know, do we talk about the newest release or do we talk about something else that's that's more prevalent? And that's sort of the give and take. Um, but I think hopefully, you know, you'll stick with the show, even though we're not talking about the newest releases. Uh, we'll be talking about films that are interesting to you. Yes, for sure. And we're excited to do it. Um, Now is also a solid time to remind you that uh, Collider has a billion (laughs) recommendation articles for things to watch on Netflix, Amazon, or Hulu. Um, Just whatever you're looking for, Google it and you'll find the article. And I would say like, you know, the obviously Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, they all have their own kind of like algorithmic recommendation engine. Uh, what, what helps us stand apart is like, we are, we are discerning in what we're recommending. Like there's, there's, it, we didn't just be, we didn't like randomly come up with be like, well, we, we have to name a hundred films that are worth watching on, on Netflix. Like there was no mandate to do that. We genuinely like these movies and we genuinely think you will like them too. 
Um, and so when you are reading our recommendation articles, you're, you're hearing from a real person that really saw this movie and really liked it and wants to share it with you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. We, uh, take great care into picking and choosing these movies and pointing you towards them. Yes. Um, so, but if we, I guess this is probably an ideal moment to segue into our first sort of older (laughs) film, which is Contagion, uh, which everyone is watching right now for obvious reasons. Uh, Steven Soderbergh's 2011 film written by Scott Z. Burns. Um, so, you know, and it's, it's, it is weird to watch a film like Contagion right now, uh, in the midst, in the midst of a contagion. Um, I found the film oddly comforting. <laughs> I didn't No, because so, so, okay. So I saw the film back in 2011. I, I assume, I think you did as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the time, the way I went into it is like, Oh, I would just fucking die. Like I was just like, I wasn't like, Oh man, how would I survive? I was just like, I'd, I'd be fucking dead. Um, cause the contagion depicted in the, in, in the film, uh, MEV one, as it is called MEV one, uh, is basically a viral strain with a, I think at some point they're like a 30 to 45% mortality rate. Like it's, it's a very deadly contagion. It's, it's yeah. Let's be, let's uh, first and foremost, let's say yes. Contagion is very prescient. Yes. Contagion is feel very, feels very real. The virus in contagion is far deadlier than coronavirus. Yeah. Coronavirus has a two to 3.4% uh, mortality rate that we know of right now. Um, obviously that depends based on health systems and what have you. And I'm not trying to downplay 2%. That's obviously still millions of people and that's nothing to, to dismiss, but from the mortality rate standpoint of the fictional movie, MEV one is far more, it's far deadlier. It just, it basically, it's a, it, whatever the pathogen does, it basically like from what I gathered watching the film, it like cooks your brain and you die. Yeah. You go full Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, you go full and never, I, I do have to admit, and this is, this is cold and cruel of me. I was pretty, it's pretty fucking funny to watch Gwyneth Paltrow die <laughs> from a health issue when she pulls, pedals fake junk, pedals fucking junk science as, as a, as her profession these days. She does do that. Uh, I just remember. I was I mean, like, that's... Hey, Hey, Gwyneth should have, should have had some, some forsythia. Forsythia. <laughs> Uh, that scene still really upsets me, um, mostly in terms of Matt Damon's reaction. Yes. It just feels really truthful. Mm-hmm. Like the doctor is telling him his wife is dead and he's like, uh, he just, it just doesn't register. He's no. like, I just saw her. She was right there. Okay. But when can I talk to her? Like, yeah, he just doesn't, yeah. it doesn't compute. And it's heartbreaking. And then he goes home and then his son is dead. <laughs> it's just awful. Um, sorry, spoiler alert for the first like five minutes of contagion. Um, that's how the movie begins. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think like, you know, I think that's the power of contagion. The power of Soderbergh is that that film, it not only feels prescient, but it also just feels really truthful. It feels mm-hmm. very, well, you know, and the thing about contagion is the star of contagion is the contagion. Like that's yeah. the thing. Like if there's no lead actor in contagion, it's, it's an ensemble piece and they all kind of show you the various facets of, okay, if a pandemic hits, here's what happens. Like just, it's very like it's, it's Soderbergh doing a horror film, but the way he, uh, sort of communicates this horror is by being very matter of fact. He doesn't sort of, he doesn't embellish. He doesn't, you know, he, he rarely embellishes. I'll, I'll correct that. Cause there's one part of the film that I think does not work at all. And we'll get to that. Um, but for the most part, I think the film it works so well because he handles it in such a cold clinical manner that it just can't help but unnerve you. Yeah. 
It's uh, and this was a period of time when Soderbergh was just cranking them out like crazy, uh, and he was just kind of making film after film, and they were all. I mean, like every one of them was was really like at least interesting or, um, you know, fascinating to watch. But the speed with which he was turning them out, I'm trying to remember what came right before Contagion, uh, The Informant. So like he did Ocean's 13 in 2007, which was kind of he admits, you know, we came back to kind of make some money because he had done The Good German and Bubble um, and even Ocean's 12 that had been like somewhat disappointing. Um, and I love Ocean's 12 and Matt also, this is a very pro Ocean's 12 podcast. Yep. Um, but after Ocean's 13, he did the Che, which I've never seen cause it's like four hours long. Um, have you seen Che? No, I haven't seen Che. I would like to see it at some point. I'll um, see it at some point. Uh, I don't like, do I have four hours to set aside for Che Guevara? <laughs> but then like the girlfriend experience and the informant. Um, but then contagion just starts this kind of, uh, this run right before his his self-imposed retirement, which is 2011 as Contagion, 2012 as both Haywire and Magic Bike, and he shot second unit on the Hunger Games for whatever reason, and then 2013 was Side Effects, and then he and then he did Behind the Candelabra, which wasn't released in theaters. So in the span of like what two years, he released like four movies. He makes he Soderbergh can make a movie very fast. Like High Flying Bird was made in the time it takes me to finish this sentence. Yeah. <laughs> No, like literally he edits as he – like every day he shoots and he goes home that night and he edits, but he edits himself. Um, and I think he also edits in camera um, like Spielberg does, meaning that he doesn't shoot a ton of coverage. He just shoots like what he needs. Um, I could be wrong on that, um, but I know he doesn't do a ton of takes. Uh, but I do know that like usually on the day that shooting wraps, he has a cut of the movie done and ready. Um, and that cut is not super far off from what it eventually ends up being because – his entire career, he served as his own cinematographer, editor, and director. So, yeah, he can. He, he just has, yeah, he has all the tools to to do the film that he wants to do. Yeah, and and Contagion is interesting because it's it's I mean, it's it's one of a few collaborations he's had with Scott Z. Burns, the screenwriter, who also wrote Side Effects, which I'm a little more cool on. I'm not. I, I yeah, I'm not a hu- I'm not a huge Side Effects fan. Um, but it's between the informant, which is kind of this absurdist comedy, um, and then Haywire, which is this like lean, mean action thriller. And Contagion has that kind of lean aspect of Haywire. And I do think the the films that he's making throughout this period, especially after Che, um, he's kind of erring on the side of making something um, lean, like really um, concise and to the point. Um, and I think that's one of Contagion's strengths is that it doesn't waste any time and it's all about economy of storytelling. Like mm-hmm. how can I tell this story in as few scenes as possible? Yeah. And I would actually say that as you know, the leanness is one of the film's strengths and its weaknesses. Cause it's, it does make the, the economy of storytelling very good, but also at the same time it gives the, it for the story of what is a pandemic, he really doesn't show us most of the world. He shows us mainly the U S and a little bit of China and that's it. And it's the kind of film, like as as I was rewatching, I'm like, it'd be interesting to see if like there was like a lab in Germany that was working on the vaccine, you know, like something to sort of show that like, we're all in this, but the cost of saying now we're going to Germany is perhaps cost prohibitive to sort of say, to say like, we are now going to really show you the cost of it. And so really when you venture outside the United States, all you really get is the Marion Cotillard storyline, which I think is the weakest part of the film. Yeah. That storyline, 
it doesn't like it, it doesn't really fit very well with the rest of the story. No, and because and which is weird because it, at first it fits really well. Like she is a World Health Organization investigator, basically, and there are these great scenes of her like looking at camera footage, like trying to find like what Gwyneth Paltrow was up to and who she was interacting with. And yeah. those scenes work really well. And then all of a sudden, there's like we have to kidnap you. <laughs> it's like wait, what? <laughs> We have to kidnap you so that we get the vaccine first. Wait, what? (laughs) She's just like a person. Like she's not like, like a, I don't know. It just, it, it feels like a, a weird attempt to jazz up a story that doesn't need it. And it doesn't really fit. And it makes the, it, it makes the perspective seem even smaller for a story that is mainly told from the perspective of American characters to have like the Chinese characters be like, and we'll kidnap you. Like that just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't feel great. Yeah. I will say the broader idea of that though, I, it does feel true. It, it kind of the inherently selfish nature of humanity. Mm. Uh, it does feel like that is something that could happen, but the, the, like the practicality of it being like, this is the only non-American storyline. And it's also the only one where, uh, you know, non-Americans are, 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 being shown as posing a threat um, doesn't jive super well with the rest of the film. But I do like, I, I mean, I think the film's real true um, it focus uh, or, or kind of obsession, I would say, is on bureaucracy and how how does bureaucracy both help and hinder a pandemic like this? So I love the scenes of, you know, Elliot Gould working with the specimen in a private lab um, and the CDC tells him to stop because it's too dangerous. Um, because the government wants to keep it all kind of contained and they kind of know what's going on. But then you have kind of the moral flexibility of Lawrence Fishburne's character who works at the CDC and he knows more than most people do, but he also has a loved one that he wants to kind of warn. Um, I like that whole aspect of it. And then you have the the kind of boots to the ground of Kate Winslet's character, who I think is really selfless Mm -hmm. um, and really uh, quite moving. Um, I like that aspect of it. And then Matt Damon is kind of the... The The everyman. Every band, but kind of like the the nucleus of the movie, the heart of the movie. If if Gwyneth Paltrow is patient zero, you're he is really the character through whose eyes you're seeing the impact of loss yeah. um, throughout humanity, and just kind of the everyday person going about life, like going to the grocery store, stuff like that. Um, I it, I am amazed at how many characters the film is able to layer in and and do so successfully. I mean, you know, especially uh, Jude Law's character who feels like he fits right in on uh, you know Infowars or Breitbart. Yeah, this. I mean, I want to de- yeah, I definitely want to get to Alan Krum- Alan Krumwitty. Um, yeah, but before we do, like, I also want to say like I think this film kind of jives with Soderbergh's worldview in terms of how he approaches Hollywood, which is that the ones who get things done are the ones who just do it and don't wait for a bureaucracy to let them. Cause that's sort of the story of contagion is when things move forward, it's because someone has broken the rules. So like if it's Elliot Gould, like he is able to isolate the virus, even though they told the bureaucracy told him, no, he was like, screw it. I'm going to do it anyway. And he succeeds. And like, and then later in the film, um, Jennifer L's character, is basically like, we don't have time to wait for trials. I'm just going to test it on myself because I need to save my dad. Like yeah. eventually the, and, and it's, it's sort of the way the film has an interesting view of both how humanity selfishness can in ways be beneficial, how it's usually destructive, but there are times where it breaks through uh, the bureaucracy to get things done and move things forward at a pace uh, when there's no time to wait. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And I 
you know, I think Soderbergh does layer in uh, metaphors for filmmaking and for the industry through uh, a lot of his films, um, including, gosh, I can't remember. There's one specifically, I think it's Haywire, that uh, I was told may or may not be a response to the Moneyball debacle. Um, Soderbergh was supposed to direct Moneyball on a Friday. He turned in a radically different script and was fired by the studio. Um, Brad Pitt remained on board as producer and star and kind of reconceived the movie with Ben Bennett Miller. And I love that movie, but um, supposedly Soderbergh may have felt a little betrayed that Brad Pitt didn't step in and kind of put his weight behind him. Um, and lo and behold, Haywire is about uh, an agent who is kind of uh, screwed over by someone she feels like is a friend and uh, is on the run to kind of try and find the truth. So that is that is not uh, uh, out of the realm of yeah. uh, possibility for Soderbergh. Yeah. To but I think, story. you know, also I think one of the, the benefits of Contagion is that it's not a nihilistic or misanthropic film. It's not a film where everyone is a bastard and every person is only out for themselves, but rather people, the way people react varies. Like, you know, uh, Lawrence Fishburne's character, the, the head of the CDC, like he does some selfish things. Yeah. He, he, he looks out for a personal loved one, but you know, he's not trying to be like, he's just, he's doing something that's very human, but by the same token, you also have the Alan Crumwitties of the world who see this as, a situation that can be exploited for personal gain. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And his character is slimy and gross and terrible and feels all too real. They had to give, I like that they had to give like Jude Law, like a fake gross tooth yeah, to like ugly him up to be like, ah, oh, this character's bad. <laughs> he's too good looking to be that, that terrible of a human being. Exactly. Yeah. I can't, I can't buy Jude Law as a villain otherwise, but no, but like, I think Jude Law, you know, the thing is, is that of all the things of, uh, of contagion that feel the most prescient and the most immediate, it's Alan Crumwoody. He is the, the person spreading around fake news to his own benefit to create more fear, to line his own pockets out of a sense of utter cynicism where he believes he is totally in the right. That is, that is, that was happening before coronavirus hit. Um, it's just more immediate. <laughs> it just feels more immediate now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, Alex Jones is buying magic tooth is selling magic toothpaste that can cure coronavirus. <laughs> If you if you think this is an exaggeration, oh god, is it called Forsythia? It should be called Forsythia. Um, but yeah, it's like I think the film just works really well. It's just how matter of fact it is, and it didn't like again. Like I expected watching it to be like, oh man, this is really chilling. And again, maybe it's because the way we're dealing with coronavirus is not as I don't know horrifying. I mean, the thing again, the the pandemic at the core of can Contagion is a much deadlier and much more visceral and dramatic sort of illness. Um, and I think that sort of gives the film a more, you know, I mean, the, the, one of the things that really struck me at this time is how fast everything moves in contagion. You're like, like Dave, like by the time like day 26 rolls around, like you have the national guard giving out like rations. Yeah. And like, which we're, is not like a, you know, it, it feels true to life having lived through a pandemic now where days, you know, two days ago feels like two years ago. Yeah. Like everything moves very fast. And like, there is a sort of a startling attention to detail. Like, again, like we were talking about the economy of storytelling, 
at no point in the film is there a scene where like I'm the garbage commissioner and you're no there no one gets to collect garbage. Instead, Soderbergh's like, no, the streets are just filled with garbage now. Like it's just he just leaves it there and and the and you figure it out. Like of course, yeah. no one's picking up the garbage, but like garbage yeah. is still getting produced. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's a really you know that's the thing. Like I mean. On the one hand, I understand people like I would not want to watch a disaster movie in times of a disaster. But I, I again, I found Contagion oddly comforting. I don't know why. I found it entertaining and and just fascinating as um, kind of an inside look at what may actually be happening right now in our country. Um, I watched it before they started closing down all the stores and everything. Um, so the the whole like trip to the grocery store rings a little truer now than it did a couple weeks ago. Um, having been to the grocery store yesterday and seeing just like gigantic empty rows where toilet paper should be. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, it did not freak me out, but, uh, you know, the severity of the situation kind of really underscores the severity of the situation we're in right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, it's not like contagion is like, this is what's going to happen. Cause I think so far so good. <laughs> I mean, things are tough, but I think there are people like, I think contagion again with only, it only has, it only, t- it tells the story in about an hour and 46 minutes. Yeah. And I don't think that captures quite the, the breadth of human behavior. It also doesn't, you know, by coming out in 2011, social media hadn't really taken root um, in the way that it has today. And I think some people are like, so there, there are some people that are really understanding like, okay, so no, social distancing is important and, you know, washing your hands. I think there's some people that are very much understanding the message. And then there are some people that are like, I'm going to go to the beach (laughs) on spring break. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not that again. So I think the film does understand like, yes, some people are selfish and foolish. Uh, but I also don't think things are as dire. Um, and you know, maybe they get that dire, but I don't, again, it's, I think contagion probably should have been more of a wake up call than we let it be. I think we allowed it to sort of exist as entertainment. Something is more disposable. And instead of heeding some of the warnings it was trying to lay out. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, (laughs) um, it's still like, I think it holds up and I think it is worth your time. Um, I think Soderbergh is just a masterful filmmaker. Um, and I'm just, uh, I'm curious what, uh, I, I assume his new film is already done. The new one he was making with Meryl Streep. Yeah, that was, yeah. And it's a Netflix movie. So, I mean, that'll be coming out. I, I mean, I saw, you know, the news broke today that the crown was not going to shut down production because they only have a week of filming left. And if they're doing things safely, it kind of makes sense for them to do that because it costs more <laughs> to shut everything down and then bring everyone back. It costs a ton to do that. Uh, and would be nearly impossible to reconvene everyone in like June or July, but also like we're going to need content (laughs) later this year if everything's shutting down. So if you only have, you know, five days left, go ahead and finish that so that Netflix will have this content to put out this fall, uh, or this winter when, you know, there's a lag in new things for people to watch. Um, Although it should be said, like, Netflix is still rolling out a ton of series that are already in the can. Um, I'm sure they have a, a number of other films that are already in the can. So we, we should be pretty stocked up on streaming content uh, this year. Um, you know, I, I guess it, it kind of remains to be seen how visual effects and post-production houses are operating, um, if they can work from home and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I think we'll probably see a new Soderbergh movie this year. 
Yeah, probably. Yeah. Maybe it came out while we were talking right now. He probably just did it all himself at his house. He's like, oh, I don't need any post-production facilities. I got it done. One of these days, I need someone I need someone to interview him and be like, who is the writer of Logan Lucky? <laughs> he will never tell. Never tell. All right. Keep it easy. All right. Uh, okay. Anything else to add about Contagion, or should we move on to Recently Watched? Uh, no, let's move on to recently watched. All right. So currently with recently watched, we've sort of, we're giving ourselves a new rule, which is the recently watched has to be something available on a streaming service so that you too can watch it. Yes. Um, so Adam, what do you got for us? Although long live physical media, we both have a robust Blu-ray and, uh, yeah, but yeah, we have a robust thing, but I'm not going to send your ass out to Best Buy right now. (laughs) So (laughs) I mean, Uh, yeah. Anyway, go on. Yeah, I did watch the Thomas Crown Fair and, and, or earlier this week and enjoyed that. Um, I had never seen that. It, uh, kind of a nice slick film that I did not know it was directed by John McTiernan. Um, but I, I don't know, because I am a glutton for punishment and pain, decided now was the right time to watch the Hillary docuseries on oof. Hulu. Oof. <laughs> Nuclear oof. All right, go on. <laughs> uh, and it's good. It's really good. It's four hours long. Um, I don't think it's going to win over any people who already hate Hillary, but I do think it's fascinating because it, you know, it covers her, her life and career, um, from when she was a precocious young child all the way up through the 2016 election and it's framed through the 2016 election. So each, uh, installment has footage, uh, during that campaign trail from the 2016 election and you're seeing how things echo. Um, but what I found most striking is that, you know, uh, she's been in the public eye for so long and there's a lot of assumptions that I think people make about her and have made about her. But what I found really interesting was that like, you know, throughout her twenties and thirties, she was a hardcore feminist who was really pushing, um, really strongly progressive agendas. And when Bill Clinton got in the office of the presidency, she was the one pushing him towards progressive agendas. And she, you know, you also see her struggling to uh, reconcile this role as, I mean, what basically happened is she had huge aspirations. She was breaking down barriers by going to law school um, at a time when women were not going to law school. Um, She went to Harvard Law, I think. and, uh, and then she fell in love with Bill Clinton and married him and they moved to Arkansas cause that's, he wanted to run for office there. And so you're seeing this woman who obviously is insanely smart and insanely capable and very progressive, uh, having to reconcile being a quote unquote first lady. Um, and I didn't realize it, it as I, as I was a kid, I lived in Arkansas for a little bit, but I didn't necessarily realize how big of a deal it was that, that when Bill Clinton won the governorship in Arkansas and was the youngest governor ever, there was a huge deal made about the fact that Hillary had not changed her name from Hillary Rodham to Hillary Clinton because she didn't want to, um, because she didn't feel like she needed to. She didn't need to lose her name in order to uh, marry this person that she loved. Um, but then in order – when he um, was reelected a few years later after losing the next election, she did change her name. And you see this kind of soft morphing of her into someone that's a little bit more publicly palatable. Um, and then the, the same thing happens when they get to the White House. At first, she's uh, you know very strongly involved with Bill Clinton's agenda, um, with running points on things, uh, most notably healthcare. Uh, and then you know when there's blowback and people in the country are not super cool with the first lady doing things because she's incredibly capable, she steps back. You know she starts tending to uh, you know the Christmas gatherings and and things that are more traditionally 
propelled for uh, you know a, a first lady's role. And so, again, in contrast with that, and they, there are interviews that were conducted for the documentary with Hillary, with Bill, with Chelsea, and with Barack Obama, and with a number of uh, like John Podesta. Um, Robbie Mook, a ton of people who have been around for a long time uh, throughout her campaign. But you see that contrasted with her running in the 2016 election and being, um, uh, you know, painted as this moderate. I just found it it really fascinating to see how her entire life she was told she's not this enough, she's not that enough. And it just continues and echoes on and on and on throughout her entire career. Um, And then, yes, it's very hard to watch the final episode of it. Uh, It's very rough. There is a lot of really interesting footage on that campaign trail, Um, although I did find it curious and interesting, and they do note in the documentary that she did not allow them to film her on election night. So there is not footage of her on the um, night of the 2016 presidential election. But it's a rough watch, especially if you were a Hillary supporter. but I do think even if you're not a Hillary supporter, just as a politics junkie, it's just a really interesting chronicle of, you know, our inarguably one of the most important political figures in history um, and substantial political figures in history. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of torn on it because I've, on the one hand, I kind of feel like I get it. I get Clinton. I get I've 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 watched doc, I've watched like the frontline documentary on her and like, yeah. I, I get it. <laughs> but then on the other hand, you're right. She is important. And like, you know, but. I think she's important in a way of what her as a figure says about us more than what it says about her. And that, that's the thing that the documentary does a really great job of painting is that like, you know, really drilling down into the media coverage and and how people responded to her and how she was constantly trying to conform to what they, what she thought they wanted. Um, But then also just personally, and again, this is maybe just my male privilege. I would have bailed out on that. The second people were like, Hillary Clinton has people secretly killed (laughs) because at that point, maybe it's a fucking lost cause. Well, what's really interesting, and this is where I think the documentary is really um, substantial and, and what kind of makes it worthwhile is the interviews with the people involved, especially Hillary and Bill. But it is so clear from her that she is very... She explains every decision along the way, and at each of those points, she just felt – so uh, Bill Clinton was elected governor, and he, he lost his re-election bid when she didn't change her last name. She felt deeply personally responsible for that happening. She felt it was her fault. And so at every turn, uh, you know, uh, and with healthcare, with her being on the front and being criticized, she felt it was her fault that um, you know, things were not going well for – Bill's uh, office and, and um, you know, what he was trying to accomplish, which I thought was just really heartbreaking and really uh, interesting um, just to kind of hear it firsthand. And yes, it does go into the affair. Um, it does, you know, have a number of interviews with people who have known them personally for a long time. So it's not this kind of hagiographic, you know, Hillary's the best person in the world. Um, but there, is, there's a, there are a lot of first person accounts of okay. a lot of major moments in history. So. I think you convinced me to watch it. You son of a bitch. <laughs> It's, I mean, uh, I watched it with my fiance and she was just kind of in tears throughout the entire final episode. So it's very sad. And I think it's, it probably strikes women a little differently than men because, you know, it's also just broadly about, you know, women can't win. Like they try and do this and they get uh, criticized. They try and do that and they get criticized. Like, what is it that people want other than for them to just like, you know, um, go in the kitchen and make me a sandwich. Like it, it just feels like, you know, go you're you're not supposed to be here is kind of the overlying yeah if i can sneak in a book recommendation i'd highly recommend reading rebecca tracer's good and mad which is about the transformative power of women's anger in politics and how angry women get shit done but like 
how women's feelings are always diminished. And whereas like if a man is a man is emotional, he's just like really like being truthful <laughs> instead of, you know, like it's just the, these different gender standards are pretty fucked up. Yes. They are not wonderful. Not great, Bob. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Okay. Um, well, thank you for that recommendation. Uh, I'm going to recommend uh, Todd Haynes, 1995 film safe uh, starring Julianne Moore, which is currently streaming on criterion channel. Uh, and watching it in the middle of a pandemic that highlights social isolation uh, was putting on a pair of bad idea jeans. <laughs> I mean, the film is fantastic. So the film is about Julianne Moore plays this housewife in 1987 in the San Fernando Valley who starts suffering from these mysterious ailments. Like she'll go to the hairdresser and start getting a nosebleed or she'll hug her husband and his cologne will make her start throwing up and it's not really clear what's causing these ailments. She goes to the doctor and the doctor says, you're perfectly fine. It, it seems like this is psychosomatic. And the film has this fantastic kind of circular structure where she goes from kind of one form of isolation where she's this wealthy homemaker in the San Fernando Valley to someone who's living essentially on a commune in this isolated space. And she's just as alone at the beginning as she is at the end. And, but it's fascinating to kind of watch this journey of this person um, that has doesn't know her place in the world. Like she feels sort of isolated from everything and feels that she doesn't really have much of an identity or a personality. And the film is really fascinating for how it kind of works on these multiple levels because it's not just a film about um, a woman's isolation, but it's also a film about self-help culture and, you know, this notion that if something's wrong with you, you're the problem and you, you know, whatever the problem is, it's internal and you need to fix it. But the only way to fix it is through some self-help guru who wouldn't, you know, it is expensive. Um, and then of course the 1987 setting and the mysterious ailments definitely taps into the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, what is that like, you know, what, when you have an illness and no one can explain it, it's, it's kind of a commentary on that. Um, I would say the film's biggest flaw is that it's, it's one of those films that's almost about too many things and sort of its themes can collide with each other, but it's, it's really, it's gorgeously shot. Uh, this was Julianne Moore's kind of breakthrough performance. This really kind of put her on people's radar. Um, and it's a, a great turn by her. She just knows it's a perfectly calibrated turn in terms of how quiet and soft she plays this woman who's is suffering, but can't even give voice to what is she exactly suffering from. Um, and it, it's a really powerful film and I was fascinating to watch it. Um, that I, cause last year Todd Haynes came out with a new film called dark waters. Um, and in that film, it's also about people suffering from mysterious ailments, but they can't explain it. But in dark waters, there really is a chemical that's really causing people harm. And it's fascinating because in safe, it's never really like, well, what is hurting her? And they can never really come to it's all it's all kind of left in the abstract. Uh, whereas in dark waters, there really is something there. But in both cases, the world is chipping away at you. Um, and it kind of gave me a greater appreciation for dark waters, even though I think safe is the much stronger film. Interesting. Yeah. Dark waters is a weird movie. <laughs> it just kind of like appeared very quickly and like it's solid. But yeah, like well, it's and it's also that. just not quite the film you'd expect from Todd Haynes, you know, yeah. from the director of Carol and Far From Heaven and I'm Not There. Like, he usually kind of makes these kind of, I don't say weird films, but they're films that are very much about 
identity and social identity and, you know, feeling out of place in the world. Um, and Dark Waters is more of a kind of a corporate procedural almost like kind of it's 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 a lawyer fighting against things. And but, you know, finding that commonality between Dark Waters and Safe, I think really it made Dark Waters a stronger film in my eyes, even though I don't think it's as effective. Yeah. Um, well, I've never seen Safe. I need to see that. Yeah, it's on Criterion Channel. You can can watch it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's my recommendation. All right, so we promised you what would be the next film we're discussing. We're actually discussing two films. <laughs> we lied. <laughs> uh, two films will be our topic of discussion next week. We are going to be talking about Batman Begins and The Dark Knight because both films are currently on Netflix, but they'll be gone at the end of the month. So we're yes, running out of time. Netflix on March 30th. Run out the clock. Yeah. 30th or the 31st? 30th, uh, they said. Oh, all right. Well, uh, well, yeah, we're running out. Yeah, so you don't have much more time. Although, honestly, Batman Begins and Dark Knight should just be in your collection. They're, they're good films. And also, what are you doing for the next week, guys? <laughs> like, yeah. Everyone's home. So, everyone's yeah. home. Watch Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. We are not discussing The Dark Knight Rises, apparently, because Matt refuses to. Well, is it on Netflix? No, it's not. So there you go. <laughs> I will discuss yeah. it. I think it's a bad movie, but I think it's kind of fascinating in, that it's, in the way that it's bad. So yeah. I would watch it again. I will watch it again. I'm going to have to rewatch all of Christopher Nolan's movies for Tenet, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that <laughs> I had a, I had a whole plan this year, guys. I had a whole yeah. plan of everything I was going to watch, timed around these big new releases, and now it's just like, now I'm kind of like, un, now I'm just like off the chain and now I'm just going to write about whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> like yeah. on the site right now, like I wrote about There Will Be Blood, which is on Netflix. So there technically is a reason to watch it, but it's not like today was like an anniversary of it. I just wanted to write about it. So I did. And now yeah. you can read about it. Yeah. And if you guys have recommendations for what you want to hear us talk about, um, something on streaming, please tweet at us. Let us know. Um, everything's on the table at this point. Um, we'll kind of be going, I mean, it's not going to all be Netflix movies, but I think most people have Netflix. So we'll probably be airing mostly on the side of Netflix stuff. But, um, yeah. And at some point we'll, we'll talk about Westworld, a new season of Westworld. You know, there's a ton of TV, uh, coming on, so there'll be plenty to talk about. So we'll be here every week, hopefully giving you guys a, a little bit of comfort and a little bit of, uh, uh, relief. From the day to day, aside from today's episode, which was all about <laughs> yes, today's episode not a good example. But next week, when we're just talking about Batman, will be which will be much better. Uh, yeah, because because sure. what's what's more comforting than hearing <laughs> Heath Ledger say, "You'll see when the chips are down, these civilized people will eat each other alive." <laughs> Damn it, Matt! <laughs> all right, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.